The U.S. Southern Command, or SOUTHCOM, is one of the Pentagon's 11 unified combatant commands. It's responsible for planning, operations, and security cooperation in Central America, South America, and most of the Caribbean. It's a joint command, including military and civilian personnel from the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marine Corps, the Coast Guard, and several federal agencies. Its mission is to deter aggressors, defeat threats, respond to crises, and work with allied and partner nations to defend the U.S. homeland and America's national interests. To tell us more, we're joined by the SOUTHCOM commander, Admiral Craig S. Fowler, a Naval Academy graduate who served as commander of the John C. Stennis Strike Group, Carrier Strike Group 3, in support of Operations New Dawn in Iraq and Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. He also has served U.S. Central Command and as the Chief of Navy Legislative Affairs. That is where he worked with Bradley Bowen, Senior Director of FDD Center on Military and Political Power, who also joins us today. We're pleased to have you with us here, too, on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the Jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Admiral, thanks again for being with us. It's just, it's, it's a, it's just a pleasure. Um, I gotta tell you, you and Brad have worked together and he said wonderful, uh, wonderful things about, about that experience and, and wonderful things about you. Well, thank you. With the there's so much important work that uh, that goes on on Capitol Hill, and uh, staff is a, many times the center of gravity. It was my experience, and uh, we we work together on important issues, uh, of defense, and uh, move some things forward. Uh, and uh, we didn't always agree, but uh, that's part of the that's part of the process. You gotta you gotta actually have some friction to move forward in the world, and uh, and uh, I think we did. And I was I was proud to reconnect with Brad here earlier this year. Great, great. Look, uh, to the extent the news media uh, focus on foreign policy and national security, it's largely, I would say, the Middle East, of course, uh, Indo the Indo-Pacific, Asia, uh, China. Um, but we have important interests and important threats uh, in our backyard, and that's kind of what you're concentrating on. Just get, why don't you start with the big picture? What concerns you, what you're looking at as you look south from uh, from your base in Florida? The national defense strategy rightly called out great power competition as uh, the, the number one uh, priority to focus on, particularly China first. And we are in no doubt in that competition. That competition is global, and that competition is alive and well here in this hemisphere. As we look at the hemisphere, it's, uh, we've really uh, come to talk about it as a neighborhood. Those sorts of things that would constitute a neighborhood, and all of us are, I think, familiar with neighborhoods from our own, own personal lives. So it's proximity, and we have that here, the physical distance, but also the proximity in all the domains that we talk about in, in war fighting. So we talk about the physical domain, land, air, sea, 
but then we talk about space and cyber and that's all areas where it's global but also distance matters another important aspect of the neighborhood is the values the the family connections the people connections and and then the economic connections and so there's so much potential in this neighborhood but it's under assault it's under assault from um, transnational criminal organizations think narco traffickers big business 90 billion a year uh, industry which undercuts uh, the um, the security of our nation states in this region and and the and institutions and it's under assault by great powers that don't have a similar view of values different different uh, concept of human rights and sovereignty and rule of law and uh, and we see China uh, moving forward for their interests across a range of uh, efforts in this hemisphere daily. Admiral, just to be clear, the, we, we sometimes use the phrase, particularly at FTD, of the dragons and the snakes. You probably know that's David Kilcullen's, the title of his book, the idea that the dragons are China and Russia and the snakes are Iran, uh, North Korea, and non-state jihadi uh, actors. Um, you see the presence of all those, with, I guess with the exception of North Korea, uh, in the Southern Hemisphere, yes? Exactly. The, the way I characterize the threats, because they are interconnected, is a vicious circle of threats that uh, is just encircling and, and suffocating uh, democracy, values, and security, all the, all the goodness of the neighborhood. And the vicious circle includes the transnational criminal organizations, narco-traffickers, the external state actors that I mentioned, China and Russia, but also Iran. Iran is uh, has uh, interest in the region that uh, go beyond just economic, and we've seen an increase in their activity in an extremely unhelpful way in Venezuela, for example. And then we have violent extremists. Uh, the Trinidad and Tobago uh, a few years back was the, one of the larger contributors to the ISIS problem set in Syria. Mm. Uh, they made a lot of progress on that front, but we still see a violent extremist uh, terrorist connection through Africa. Remember, geography matters. The closest narrows of the Atlantic is Africa to South America, and um, and so there is an entryway there that we watch very closely uh, in terms of uh, future security. But this vicious circle of threats is is really the focus of our our um, our operations and activities and investments day in and day out. Hmm. Let, me, let me turn to Brad. Brad, why don't I just let you follow up on, on whatever intrigues you about what the Admiral's had to say so far. Great. Thank you, Cook. Admiral, uh, you mentioned Venezuela. In your congressional testimony this year, uh, you said that, quote, Maduro and his cronies in Venezuela pose one of the most direct threats to peace and security in the Western Hemisphere. You also said, and this caught my attention, quote, the consequences of the Venezuelan crisis will last for generations. Can you provide, if, if you wouldn't mind, an update on the situation that you see in Venezuela? And uh, from your perspective, why, why does the situation there threaten uh, regional peace and security? And, and why should Americans care? The uh, Maduro regime's more, um, at this point, a uh, criminal gang that's uh, clinging not to power has... Uh, has wrecked the country. The people are suffering from that, the, the sheer economic depravity, the, the name the system, the water system, the sewage system, the distribution system, gasoline system, uh, agriculture, the, the mining industry, 
the oil industry all wrecked, which was once the most prosperous country in South America is now uh, the least. And that is truly due to inept, corrupt criminal leadership uh, on the part of Maduro regime. And, and when you see this vicious circle, it comes together like a cyclone in Venezuela. You have Russia providing military assistance uh, to Venezuela to uh, upgrade their systems, keep uh, their defensive systems in, in play. Uh, China is leveraging their economic interests and also supporting uh, the, so, the same kind of social monitoring via safe city, smart city that, uh, that they've become infamous for in their, in their own country. Uh, Iran is in there assisting. Uh, you have Iranian Quds Force in there now. Uh, mm-hmm. The 5 million migrants that are, have spilled outside the borders have strained the social uh, systems of all the neighboring countries and, uh, and wrecked um, the uh, economies, really created significant economic impact. It's a credit to the Colombians that they've done, that they've been able to maintain so well with such an impact. They've particularly been the hardest hit and that they've been able to maintain their professionalism and their sense of humanity. You add COVID to this mix, and it is an accelerant for all that instability. So we're a generation in the making here, the the Chavez-Maduro wrecking ball, and uh, the economic investments, the international efforts that will be required to rebuild the country are are significant. The Inter-American Development Bank's done some studies on this, and, and it's just billions and billions. Uh, we've we've done a lot of planning for uh, what we call day now. So in the event that uh, political conditions permit and militaries have to support, not a military led, but a military support, what does that look like? And uh, how does that work? And our planning has been done in, in conjunction by, with, and through our partners. Uh, that's where we found the most uh, uh, useful information on what's happening is through our intel sharing agreements with our partners. And that's where we've been able to gain the most understanding of the complexity. But it's not an easy problem set. And since when I uh, testified, I would say it's, uh, it's really just grown to a stalemate in terms of a shift to a legitimate democracy. I'm curious, when you look at the motivation behind China, Russia, Iran, and Venezuela, do they look at Maduro and say, yeah, he's an ally, he thinks like us, um, we we want to support him, or do they think he's an irritant uh, and a problem for the U.S., and any way we can aggravate the U.S. more, um, that's good for us, so that's why we support him. I I wouldn't want to predict what or try to project what's inside the, the minds of um, President Xi or Vladimir Putin. Many have tried and all have failed, but I do think it's a, a combination of all above what you say, Cliff, that uh, they're all, nation states look at their interests, there's economic interests there first for both, both the countries, different leverage, but uh, significant debt leverage for China and a significant connection to the oil industry. Now, illegitimate connections since of the uh, violation of sanctions, but with yeah. Russia, and um, and then I do think that they they don't see any advantage to ceding ground to the UN uh, because they'd be seen as ceding ground to the U.S. Uh, and so the UN is uh, is a a stalemate in its ability to help move this forward. But it has been remarkable, notwithstanding the lack of unanimity in the UN, that the international community, some sixty nations, has been able to 
to agree largely on the need uh, for a different uh, different head of the of a legitimate democracy but you don't find china and russia supporting that in cuba uh, as well therefore the as i look at the center of gravity here it's a term we use in the military to look at what are the key factors that keeps the current regime in power and that is these external actors that are um, that are in there providing necessary support financial political information it military to keep maduro uh, at the helm you haven't mentioned or at least haven't emphasized the role of Cuba. And there are those who I've heard say that Venezuela, in a lot of ways, is a satellite of Cuba at this point. Um, do you see it that way or is it more complex? The, uh, the Cubans are the Praetorian Guard for Maduro. So his uh, presidential guard is, is largely consistent of, of Cubans. And the intel service is Cuba-run in all intents and purposes. Uh, there's still the financial interdependence and lifeline uh, and a significant uh, illicit trade that goes back and forth between the two of them. So uh, Cuba is the front and center in, the, in keeping Maduro in power and the, the human rights atrocities that uh, have been called out quite well by the UN. Uh, the, I'd say Cuba has an indirect hand in all of that. Admiral, the, um, you, know, you mentioned the exodus of a lot of Venezuelans uh, from the country due to the, the corrupt, corrupt and incompetent Maduro regime. Uh, my understanding is that the, just to help uh, listeners understand the scale of that flight from Venezuela, that it, it is approaching the numbers of Syrians who have fled Syria. Do I have that about right? That's correct. The, uh, it's the largest uh, migration of, of, of people in this hemisphere. And uh, it is uh, approaching um, Syria. And uh, COVID changed that temporarily. It, uh, I think put a little freeze on it. But I, I think uh, what we're going to see is COVID's going to end up being an accelerant. Because if you look at maps of the world uh, for COVID monitoring, Venezuela comes up white, which is generally the color of no monitoring, uh, because we just have no sense of what's going on there. And I think that uh, that is going to catch up with uh, factors and be another another factor in the exodus as we push forward. Um, so the, you know, the primary victim of the Maduro regime has been the Venezuelan people and the primary, one of the primary reasons why the Maduro remains in power, as you've said already, is outside actors, including those from outside our neighborhood, like Russia, coming in and propping them up. I'd be interested if you, you wouldn't mind in kind of your assessment of Russian military activities both uniformed and otherwise, uh, uh, that you're seeing in the region, particularly those that are that are propping up the Maduro regime and operating in and around the seas and skies of Venezuela. Brad, you laid out the thank you. You laid out the the the, the linkages very well there, in terms of uh, how things are are interconnected. Uh, so when I think of uh, support, I think of uh, Cubans in the thousands and Russians in the hundreds, and it's. Uh, it's to support systems such as air defense and aircraft, uh, IT and cyber, uh, and there's a flow back and forth, but we've also seen Spetsnaz uh, support, and, uh, and that's, that's very critical. I, I think that uh, Russia's uh, hedging their bets on where they go with it, whether they scale up or down, but the fact that they're in there and invested in ensuring Maduro keeps some of his critical systems maintained is, is concerning, and it's also indicative of of how uh, 
as Cliff talked about how they're hedging their bets going forward. The um, We've seen visible symbols of that. There's been uh, some bomber flyovers. Uh, and I note that we've sent the hospital ship now twice in the previous year uh, to uh, support neighboring countries uh, in uh, one uh, a deployment of uh, shorter duration and then a longer five-month deployment. And I note that Russia, as uh, former Secretary Mattis said, Secretary of Defense Mattis said, Russia sends bombers, we send a hospital ship and an outstretched hand and uh, serve, you know, really helped uh, tens of thousands of people impacted by that, uh, that crisis. Last year, Russia sent uh, their most uh, advanced uh, frigate, which is capable of uh, having uh, nuclear tip weapons on board. We won't go into our assessment on what it was actually carrying. Uh, it made Panama Canal transit and port visits in neighboring countries did not uh, pull into Venezuela, which was interesting. Uh, in terms of uh, what they where they choose to go where they didn't choose to go but they circumvented the world as part of this deployment narco trafficking is uh is something that uh, <laughs> southern hemisphere is is well is well known for and uh you're, you're you're trying to keep an eye on that and do what you can about that um it's it's also well it's a criminal enterprise uh, groups like Hezbollah, which is in many ways the foreign legion of the Islamic Republic of Iran, very much has its hand in narco trafficking. So what you have here are terrorists, uh, is a major terrorist group with American blood on its hands, uh, finding common cause with the most powerful and richest um, international cr criminal syndicates in the entire world. Um, we've fought this at various times aggressively, and we've uh, we've backed off from that fight at, at certain times. And what I have in mind, I think you know, is that the uh, President Obama backed off when he was negotiating with the Iranians over the nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Um, where where is the effort against narco traffickers and against terrorist narco trafficker coalitions at this point? Yeah, thanks, Cliff. I, so break that down into, into two, two bins here. <clears throat> One is that transnational criminal organizations, narco traffickers, the reason why I, I, I pivot a bit and call them transnational criminal organizations is because they are global, increasingly working in cryptocurrency and money laundering. In fact, 60% mm -hmm. of the world's uh, cryptocurrency is in this hemisphere which is not proportionate to the world's money flow or population. And, uh, and so $90 billion a year industry, cryptocurrency, money laundering, human trafficking, arms smuggling, cocaine, and then in uh, Mexico, heroin, and adding in uh, synthetics into that. So they're into whatever they can to keep themselves in power. And in fact, some of these transnational criminal organizations, the ELN and the FARC dissidents, inside Columbia are designated terrorist organizations. So it blends, it spans the spectrum. And, uh, and uh, we've seen uh, since COVID increasingly, they're moving into to, uh, social services so they can uh, increase their access, presence and influence uh, during a time when governments are strained to try to win population and gain more, more uh, leverage, uh, corrupt leverage, uh, extortion, and so on. Uh, and, uh, and the connection between this and Maduro is significant. Over the last year and a half, two years, the narco trafficking flow into Venezuela and then out of this uh, lawless nation of Venezuela is, is uh, 
it, just an exponential increase. Fark distance camps, ELN, and the connection between um, illicit money that Maduro's getting uh, in these groups is is proven. Hence, why U.S. government uh, put the the kingpin designation on Maduro and a number of members of his uh, his uh, criminal gang. Then you have Hezbollah. So the uh, Lebanese diaspora population in the hemisphere is significant, large, uh, and uh, they have cultural uh, cultural centers. They've uh, a very significant financial linkage back to. Uh, uh, Lebanon and a, a financial linkage to Hezbollah. And there has been uh, instances where we have uh, busted up plots and we have, uh, we keep our eye on this and we all have some, there's some very infamous incidents of Iranian sponsored attacks, Argentina and right here, right uh, in the U.S. Capitol where you were all. Uh, and so we've watched this significantly, particularly since the, the, um, uh, the death of Soleimani and uh, threat streams and what that means for the hemisphere here. So you sit the transnational criminal organization threat alongside the extremist, violent extremist threat, Hezbollah being in that camp. Uh, it's a it's a significant um, threat stream that undermines democracy here in the hemisphere. <clears throat> I mean, why is Iran expanding their influence in uh, inside of uh, Venezuela, you know, we don't see the Hezbollah tie at this point, but we've seen the Quds Force tie, and uh, and we we're ever vigilant as to what this portends for the future. Admiral, the one of the things I remember from when we were both uh, working in and around the Senate was a point that some of your predecessors have made is that we talk about these drug networks flowing from your area of responsibility into the U.S. and the point that anything can travel along those networks and through those avenues approach. And we often talk about drugs traveling along those, but terrorists can also. And so when we're talking about, you just said the Kuds Force is active in Venezuela, right? And so, I mean, there's no reason why some of those operatives cannot travel along those same, correct me if I'm wrong, along those same avenues of approach that drugs do. And, and that makes, uh, I mean, that's a, that's a homeland security issue, is it not? The, uh, these uh, networks, they are they are they can transmit any kind of instability and that is that is a concern so really what our goal here is in the transnational criminal organization fight is working within the u.s government to put pressure on these networks to defeat them dismantle them destroy them Re really beyond just taking bales of cocaine off the sea but is to get at them in their financial resources to get after them uh, at the source uh, we are we are actively working with the developmental finance core. Uh, used to be OPIC, but uh, Congress changed the law and uh, and the mandate on what is sustainable economics on the front end of this in partner nations. That's a benefit to the United States companies, so access and and U.S. Uh, business, but also a benefit to the countries that we're talking uh, with. I traveled in. Um, in uh, August to Panama and Colombia with National Security Advisor, the President, Ambassador O'Brien, and the head of the uh, Developmental Finance Corps, Mr. Bowler, uh, to do this. And they kicked off the America Grows Initiative, America Crece. And uh, the, uh, the initiative really gets at uh, a heavy investment in this hemisphere 
Central America, Colombia being uh, really important pieces of this uh, to be part of that sustainable security. So the, the back to your point about the porousness of these pathways, uh, we got to take a total end-to-end approach to this from the street to the U.S., the, the, the companies in the U.S. to the source in the jungles uh, and elsewhere. And and I think we've made some progress in that, but certainly not enough when you see 70,000 people dying and you still uh, see uh, a significant amount of people that can move with ease uh, across the hemisphere into the uh, United States. You know, you've got uh, a lot of countries down there that are theoretically our, our friend, but I, I'm curious to know how much real help they either can or will provide. Um, our ally, or our allies in Europe, for that matter, um, they have equities there. France certainly does in that, in that part of the world. Are you pretty much on your own, or, or, or do you get some support from at least a few nations, either in South America and Europe, for the kinds of uh, missions and operations you're trying to carry out? Cliff, when you talked about our mission, deter aggression, defeat threats, and then the partner piece of that, the, the best way and the way we are mainly focused on countering those threats and deterring the missions working with our partners. So bilaterally and then through regional organizations, but it starts in the bilateral basis. We have some very capable partners. Uh, President of the United States visited Southcom headquarters in July. He asked me who the best fighters are. And I said, Columbia, hands down. That they are, they have worked very hard on the professionalism of their force, their ethical compass, modeling U.S. Uh, human rights programs and professional military education. And uh, through U.S. Columbia Action Plan, uh, they are training thousands of Central America Special Operation Forces every year uh, in the ethical use of force uh, to go out and provide stability in, in the Central America region, thousands. And, uh, and so th- this is what the term of art is, exporting security. So can a nation get to the capability where they can handle their own, and certainly Columbia has challenges, but they're working those challenges very hard, and then help others uh, with those security challenges. Uh, I look at El Salvador, the, lots of uh, challenges that they have. Uh, and and I'll stay out of the political dimension of this, but the, the chief of defense currently has been to more U.S. professional military education than I have, and uh, values professional military education, and they have a company of helicopter company in Mali right now, helping uh, UN forces, peacekeeping forces. And and Brazil similarly has uh, uh, troops, forces uh, in Lebanon and throughout Africa helping in peacekeeping. Brazil was a leader in the Haiti stabilization after the 2010 earthquake. So we have partners that are world-class capabilities and willing to help and do help and are helping as I speak uh, outside uh, their nation for the the betterment of the globe, including the hemisphere. Just like us, they're all they all have to have a, they all answer to uh, elected democracy, with uh, politics that turn into policy. But within that policy framework, I have extremely good re- relations, and there's not a day goes by that I'm not communicating with a, a partner chief of defense. Uh, and sometimes I'm asking them to do things to help us, and and they, if their policy allows, they do it. It's a it's a good news story. 
You know, let me just follow up for a second in terms of Colombia, because my, my understanding there is, but for years, FARC, this terrorist organization, was fighting an insurgency within the country, just chronic, a forever insurgency. Um, the government made a deal with FARC. A lot, there are a lot of people, I think I was probably among them, who thought the government made too many concessions to FARC, but okay, perhaps if that's the way you have to do it in order to turn this uh, terrorist organ insurgent organization. It hasn't worked out. FARC has not turned into a stakeholder in, in, in the country. Am I incorrect or is this still quite a, a lively controversy? You know, you can give your opinion or you can just tell me what the state of the, uh, the debate is. I know the, from where the, certainly from where the situation was uh, through Plan Columbia, progress has been made. The present uh, administration, and I've been to Columbia a number of times now and had conversations with uh, Minister of Defense Trujillo, uh, Chief of Defense General Navarro, and President Duque, they're not, they're not pleased with the, where the situation. They do believe that uh, too many concessions were made, that uh, was not, uh, not sufficient progress towards what the agreed end state were, was. And uh, I think he's, President Duque has tightened down on that, and there's been a backlash uh, for him uh, politically and, uh, and with the enemy. And uh, these, the FARC B and FARC dissidents now, and the uh, ELN are certainly the enemy. And while the folks spent on FARC dissidents, I think they both uh, are, uh, with a vengeance, uh, attacking the roots of democracy in, um, in Colombia. I know that the leadership there is committed to doing the right thing, seeing the process through, uh, ethical use of force, and, uh, and getting sustainable uh, security out uh, beyond the the cities into the countries where, unfortunately, there's still territory controlled by uh, these uh, narco-terrorist groups. Admiral, you, you mentioned earlier the uh, national defense strategy and its emphasis on great power competition. Um, as I've studied the, re the region and, and with great deference to your experience and position there, I, I, I am startled by how much activity there is by the People's Republic of China. I'd be interested in hearing a general overview from you of what you're seeing in, the, in your AOR with respect to Chinese activity. The central idea of the national defense strategy was the notion that U.S. Department of Defense uh, must expand the competitive space. It's a concept that uh, is important for us all to really think about deeply, wrap our heads around. Uh, it is true strategic concept of the national defense strategy. China is certainly expanding their competitive space across all elements of power. So I look at economics. Uh, SecDef, um, Secretary of Defense had a rant speech a week ago. He used the term predatory economics. That, that, that check, that applies here in this hemisphere. Uh, working uh, uh, deals that uh, are not advantageous uh, to the host nation and uh, have uh, numerous strings attached that, um, that favor the one belt, one road. Uh, political subversion. So this is a playbook that China uses. Uh, we see it increasingly here in the hemisphere. They go at the governor local level and try to influence uh, elections and political outcomes uh, with corruption, money, uh, and, and, uh, and heavy-handed influence that goes far beyond uh, any of the democratic principles that we all value here in this neighborhood of ours. Um, IT is information, um, but IT is cyber. 
So Huawei and ZTE are the, the sort of corporate examples of, uh, of what folks look at in 5G, but beneath that, the, just a plethora of smart city, safe city initiatives across hemisphere. So smart city and safe city are packages that are offered uh, for security packages. Uh, for anyone who's been to Beijing, uh, I was there in June of 2018 with Secretary Mattis. Every single street lamp uh, light pole has uh, from five to 15 different types of monitoring sensors on it. I'm told there's, uh, in that time, uh, numbers in the millions in Beijing as compared to New York City. It's a it's an astronomical difference in scale, and these are these are all kinds of uh, different types of uh, of um, technologies uh, from infrared to uh, voice and others that then feed into the social score that you get in China. They're they're exporting that kind of technology across the hemisphere. Some of it is is innocuously seeming as just a C2 for a cyber center, but all of it, I would say, has a front door right into the Chinese Intel apparatus. Uh, we're watching that uh, with, with alarm. Space. China has significantly expanded their infrastructure in space monitoring and space capabilities in this hemisphere very significantly. Intelligence. The mili- now I'm getting into the military dimension. Intelligence, significant expansion from defense attaches to um, classified systems beyond the, the venue here. And in the military realm, they figured that partner nations aren't, aren't, don't have the cash to buy and might not necessarily want to buy Chinese gear anyway. So they're gifting significant quantities of Chinese uh, military, whatever somebody wants from band equipment to trucks to boats. And they're focused on places like Guyana who has this significant ExxonMobil uh, reserves. Professional military education, that, that's our game changer. So if you, if you ask me, what's the number one thing I would never want to lose besides my, my team, our people, which are, are the best, it would be this professional military education, international military education training, IMED is the acronym we use. Uh, China has realized that they've taken the, the uh, playbook, the doctrine from Leavenworth and, and Carlisle Army War College converted it to um, Spanish and and in uh, Mandarin, and they're inviting rafts of people over for training. Uh, they've actually gone so far as to figure out how many people I'm sending to Carlisle from the hemisphere, and then they've upped the ratio so they can offer more. Um, and so all this concerns me. In 1997, I participated in a study in the Pentagon about where China would be in um, 5, 10, 15, 20 years in the South China Sea. It was a Navy-only study. I was a lieutenant commander on the study group, was not the lead. And the the study lead was very alarmist about what might happen in terms of militarization of islands in the South China Sea and expansion of their Navy and was generally dismissed by others above him as, "Ah, that'll never happen. I feel that China's, uh, if we don't uh, work to change the trajectory, that's what we're going to see 10, 15 years from now in this hemisphere. Uh, they're pursuing deep water ports in El Salvador, Jamaica, and Dominican Republic. Commercial interests, but make no mistake about it, you don't build uh, blue water carriers and oilers and hospital ships and amphibious ships and advanced destroyers and cruisers uh, to have them only operate inside the first island chain.
What a what a great overview of what uh, uh, I view as our leading uh, great power competitors doing in our backyard. I mean, I, I hope every American hears what you just said. I mean, you. I just would add a couple of things. Frankly, some of it from your testimony. You've said that um, 19 Latin American Caribbean nations are now participating in China's One Belt One Road. So you know, a lot of times we'll think of the One Belt One Road and we'll think it's something way over there. I mean, 19. Uh, in your area of responsibility, operate, uh, participate in One Belt, One Road. And 25 of 31 countries in the region have significant or major Chinese infrastructure projects. And, you, and, and just one anecdote that may resonate with some folks, you mentioned space. Um, as you would know better than me, there's a space tracking uh, facility in Argentina uh, that Reuters wrote a very interesting report on last year. And it, it turns out after a little digging, according to Reuters, that this space program, it's run by the military. So the agreement was that this was going to be a civilian, uh, you know, a space tracking station, you know, in the middle of nowhere, Argentina. And so they come, it came in probably at the lower level, I would imagine, may or may not have been some corruption there, uh, got this space tracking facility. And, oh, what do you know, according to a January 2019 Reuters report, uh, it's run by the People's Liberation Army. The Patagonia, this is, I'm quoting from the Patagonian station is managed by the China Satellite Launch and Tracking Control General, which reports the PLA Strategic Support Force. So to me, this is just a, a vivid example of what we see time and time again. And colleagues here, Elaine Dzinski has done great work on a below, below the Belt and Road. I, I encourage people to look that up on our website. We have a China program uh, that's doing a lot of great work on military civil fusion under, under Cliff's leadership. But it's just a classic example how they come in, it looks benign, it looks economic, it looks civilian. But in, in an authoritarian country, I would argue there's really no such thing as a private Chinese company. In the end, when the party calls, the, you know, the, the company is going to say, you want me to jump how high? I mean, that's really the way it is. So I, you know, there's a lot that would really welcome you to respond. No, absolutely, Brad. And, and I'd add to that, uh, well, the number fluctuates a little bit, but uh, the current number is 40 plus port deals in addition to the access to deep water ports that I mentioned is just another uh, example of trying to lock up the uh, the river infrastructure for the entire South America. So the rivers that run along the, the Brazil, Paraguay, Argentine, Uruguay border, think think about the Mississippi River system. It's even bigger than that. And they're, they're investing heavily in that because this hemisphere, this beautiful neighborhood of ours, has an abundance of water, something China doesn't have. And with abundance of water, you can move things and you can have agricultural access uh, and you lock up uh, river access and you have leverage over um, nations' economies. It's, uh, it is concerning. And, and it, so, you know, our counter to this is uh, to be that partner of choice uh, to illuminate where we can work with um, whole governments. You know, COVID is an example. So uh, notwithstanding the clear evidence of how COVID origin originated, China's come into the hemisphere with uh, uh, mask and uh, ventilator uh, diplomacy. Uh, but the, we've been a little quiet, more quiet about it, but I would say we've been equally active at Southcom working with USAID. Uh, we see where they're trying to uh, you know, deliver um, we're not going to try to match them dollar for dollar, although right now uh, the U.S. government's contribution to this hemisphere uh, for COVID and COVID recovery is larger than any other nation. Um, we saw in uh, partner nation where they uh, partner uh, China offered a hospital. Uh, we quickly moved out and uh, delivered a hospital within two months. So we can move fast when we need to. 
Uh, recently, I was in Jamaica and we delivered a hospital to uh, a field hospital, 70 beds made here in America uh, at, a, at a pretty reasonable cost um, in Jamaica that will be put to use for the COVID crisis. So that's, that's what being a good partner looks like at the tactical level. I mean, I, 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 look, I, I see what China is trying to do in South America, in Indo-Pacific, um, by controlling these ports, having these ports answerable to the Communist Party of China and Beijing. This is 21st century imperialism. And they can go, and the countries may think, well, this is great, we're getting investment cheaper than we could from anybody else, it's okay. Or they may think, I'm getting a little bank account from the Cayman Islands out of this, so uh, I think this is probably a pretty good idea for me and my family. Um, I'm willing to do it. And uh, I, I think it's a, a very serious threat that, we, that, first of all, we've only begun to really recognize, after all, for years we thought as China got richer and more, as China got more prosperous, it would get more moderate and become a better, uh, a better citizen of the, the global village. We've only recognized in the last few years that was that was not what was happening. Um, that China sees itself as our adversary, as our competitor, as our rival, uh, and intends to replace us in many ways. And rather than become more democratic, uh, I think Xi Jinping, uh, who has made himself president for life in a one-party system, genuinely believes that authoritarianism is the, is the future, and that dem- democratic societies, representative government, doesn't really work. And I think. China and Russia are doing everything they can to make sure it works less well uh, in Eastern Europe, in Western Europe, and and in the United States uh, as well. When we meet with partners, Cliff um, and Brad, we we talk about what we can bring to them. So like two two athletic teams meeting to to pull together and create an all-star team, we focus on our attributes and, uh, and how do we make our interoperability, domain awareness stronger, our educational linkages, our exercise. Uh, where, I, where I can, I highlight those very things you just said about China. Uh, and, and if I can uh, share things that might be classified, I get permission to do that so that they are educated at, at to what we know. And it's facts. Uh, and, uh, and you and Brad have hit on many of those facts. I say to the partner chief's defense, look, I'm not asking you to choose. Now, we're your partner of choice, and we will remain so. But when, you, when it gets right down to it, the thing that brings us most closely together is our values. And where are you? I know where you are, General so-and-so, on rule of law, democracy, human rights, professionalism. Professional forces are legitimate. That's a, the, our, our legitimacy is our professionalism with our own people. They all want to aspire to that. Some, some have varying degrees of difficulty getting there and, um, and, and add in, you know, sovereignty and respect for women and diversity. This is a conversation you can have all day. I said, okay, so you want to partner with China on X, Y, and Z and buy a system. Just think about it. Where's China on any of those factors? And is that a system you want in your military, uh, you want in your country? And that there's, you walk down that path and there's no disagreement uh, amongst military professionals, what they want going forward. But as you pointed out, uh, people will uh, accept uh, money and influence and favors. Uh, one chief of defense said to me, look, I feel like a drowning man. I'm going to take a lifeline from China. I said, okay, but that rope can be, uh, uh, that rope can have a lot of consequences and it might just, might just, uh, might just uh, 
strangle the uh, democracy right out of your country. Admiral, uh, for perhaps uh, some of our remaining time, wanted to kind of dive into some uh, hardcore Department of Defense issues with you, if I could. One in particular is the, um, the state partnership program. I'd uh, be one, wondering if you could just tell the listeners what that is and how it helps you accomplish uh, your mission in, in your area of responsibility. The state partnership program is a significant part of our engagement with our partner nation. So each state's National Guard has a, has a partnership with a, a different nation around the world. Some states have two. And so that this is a longstanding relationship where there can be a lot of, get to be, gets to be a lot of familiarity uh, and commonality, people to people connections between that state and their partner nation. Uh, it involves training, education, professional military education for our enlisted, for our officers. Uh, and training could be the, the, the guard would use their one of their annual training periods to send forces for an exercise. Uh, for example, uh, we just last year signed a state partnership between the state of New York and Brazil. Really good connection. There's a there's cultural connections. Uh, we did the signing on the uh, Intrepid in New York Harbor. And already the New York Guard has moved out with uh, their C-17, some of their capacity to participate in Brazilian exercises. And so it's a force multiplier. I, I am I am very excited about the program. It's a it's a very cost-effective program. Uh, we, that's just key for we don't have a lot of resources in it, but we get a lot of uh, return on our investments uh, over a long period of time. Louisiana has a partnership with Belize. Louisiana has taken some of their uh, youth programs where they work with disadvantaged youth, give them a second chance, and they built uh, help build a school and they help staff that school in Belize. And uh, and it's been I toured the school, met the kids, uh, and it's been a significant success in turning young uh, citizens around and and uh, and providing them opportunity. Uh, I could go on all day. I'm so excited about state partnership. <laughs> I understand that a lot of your ex- your military, your hardcore combat power, combat readiness, military exercises and training is dependent on the state partnership program. I mean, is, is that correct? <laughs> We don't have many forces assigned to us. In fact, uh, zero forces assigned. We, uh, we get a few forces allocated for the counter-transactional criminal, some special operations forces uh, for training. We get some now uh, security force assistance from the Army, but small numbers work in training. Uh, so the state partnership is really our main force provider, the main forces that we get uh, from each uh, of the yeah. states for the countries. And, and it's not just the alignment to state. Um, a territory. So Puerto Rico, while not a state, is a significant, Puerto Rican Guard is a significant provider of forces to help us in training exercises. And there's a real cultural connection there um, that uh, is a huge benefit for us. I would just note quickly that uh, Congressman Steve Womack and Congressman Dutch Rupersberger, a Republican and a Democrat, recently just asked uh, GAO uh, to conduct a review of the state partnership program to ensure that it has sufficient resources and is fully aligned with the national defense strategy. I think that's a great effort. Something I wrote about in an op-ed, and I'm excited to report that GAO has uh, agreed to conduct that review. So that's that's something I'm excited to see go forward. Talked a lot about great power competition, but in terms of relevance to Americans' lives, and given all the Americans that have that have uh, 
been uh, hurt and killed by illicit uh, drugs coming from the region. You know, I, I couldn't help but notice in your, in your recent testimony that you said, of all the shipments that you're seeing with all your ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, that you were only able to interdict 9%. Now, that number is a little higher than what it was back when I was working for Senator Kelly Ayotte, when I'm glad to see. But So I just would love for you to emphasize for the, the listener what, what you're saying there. We're only able to interdict 9%. Why is that? And what could you do with one more helicopter, one more cutter, one more platform to interdict to get that 9% higher, what that would mean? Think about the area that we're trying to cover here uh, that our partner nations are trying to cover is uh, equal to the size of the United States. When you look at the sea area and the land and lay the map of the United States, that, that would, uh, it, it's actually larger than that, but that's the Caribbean and out into the Pacific, out to the Galapagos. Uh, so on average day, we have about eight to 10 U.S. Coast Guard and Navy ships work in that space along with partner nation forces and then on the land, we only provide indirect support, training support to partner nation forces. So there are a lot of, back to your question, your point, um, Brad, about pathways that these networks can follow. A lot of different pathways into the United States that should concern all of us. So um, in December timeframe, I was asked by Secretary of Defense, Ed, if put together a, a request for what you think you could use to enhance these operations. So we did that, well, we briefed it up, we got permission for more forces and more assets beyond just the forces, and uh, we've made a difference. So we're up to 20% interdicting of the known flow now, and that's despite COVID. And what's positively impacted that is partners. So as, um, as Murphy's Law would have it, we got approval for all these forces just as COVID came. And so there was a lot of, uh, discussion and work to ensure we could have access for our ships to get fuel in Panama, our planes, our forces to monitor intelligence. But our partners came through when asked. And when the U.S. stayed on the playing field, our partners stayed on the field. So Columbia stepped up with their own operation, Orion 5. Now they're being Orion 6. The Hondurans stepped up. Guatemalan stepped up. Uh, some of our agency partners in the U.S. stepped up. And so it, it has made a difference. We are getting a higher percentage of the flow uh, with uh, the addition of assets. And so what do we need? So it's three different, I think about this in three different bins. It, it, everything we do, our operations, our interaction with our partners begins with intelligence. What do we know about China? What do we know about transnational criminal organizations? We have to understand the, the, the uh, complexity of the security environment. In this area, we need more intelligence, human intelligence, uh, surveillance intelligence, the ability to use big data and machine learning to look at open source in large volumes uh, to, to find patterns that lead to sustained pressure. It's not just physical ISR, although we need more of that as well. Then we need in the security cooperation realm. It, to get partners to step up, we've got to invest in them. So that's time. But, but a time and sitting down with partners and, and education and sitting at roundtables only goes so far. We need to help them invest in their intelligence apparatus. We need to help them invest in their own sustainable training and in platforms that are appropriate for the combined fight. Maybe it's a, a, a King Air 
that's uh, interoperable with our forces. Maybe it's uh, helping them put more people at Joint Interagency Task Force South to come into our network. That Joint Interagency Task Force South is our premier uh, counter TCO, counter transaction criminal organization uh, fighting team that works for me in Key West. So Intel, um, security cooperation. And we've seen uh, some real success stories in the security cooperation. It does pay to invest in professional forces, maybe the Guatemalan Special Naval Forces, an example. And then the final bin is in assets. So that's where an area the size of the United States does need assets. So we do need ships. And the Navy, as our United States Navy, is a global force. They've stepped up, and I think the littoral combat ship is a good platform. And it, we've used it to really work through uh, some of the issues, and they've been out there making a difference on the field at sea day in and day out. Admiral, we're going we're gonna to wrap up, but it, it, I want to give you an opportunity. Anything, any issues that Brad and I weren't clever enough to think of that you want to make sure to attempt to bring to the attention of what we, uh, what we hopefully call the foreign policy community? It's our, it's our partnership. So the, the countering threats, the, the deterring aggression, the, the getting to uh, a secure hemisphere. Gotta, we have to have security in order to have prosperity and freedom. It's uh, three legs on a, a stool, but it does start with security and, and working with our partners on that. And uh, we'd have capable partners. Uh, we've invested in education. We've invested in exercises. We've invested in forces that will fight today's fight against transnational criminal organizations. Also that relationship, that professional relationship and professional institutions, that's where we're gonna gain our real positional advantage to uh, thwart China's attempt to change world order, to have an authoritative model. It's a fight for the future of democracy. Well, you know, Americans tend to look east and west, uh, not so much north and south, but the southern hemisphere, it's vital to America's national security. Uh, we're lucky to have you and your forces defending America and America's interests in this important region. So thanks for all you do, Admiral, and we look forward to continuing the conversation on and off the air. Thank you. Yeah, it's been good. It keeps me sharp thinking about these tough issues and your questions are right to the heart of it. I just would, would uh, say one thing. It's not backyard, it's the neighborhood, which is even more... Uh, um, and, and important and, and a visual that all Americans should understand. Um, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not worried about the backyard. I'm worried about the entire yard of the house. And the most important aspect of the neighborhood is the values that would connect us all that are under assault by changes in the global order. And if we don't get it right here in our neighborhood, uh, then uh, I, I feel we'll, we'll lose uh, the battle. Um, globally. And General Neller, as Commandant Marine Corps said, hey, China is inside our interior lines. That's a term we use in the military to talk about inside our camp. They're inside our neighborhood's interior lines in a way that is not uh, conducive to uh, prosperity and freedom and security for all of us in the future. Good point, and I stand corrected. Thank you again, Admiral. Thanks also to you, Brad. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you're listening to foreign policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, 
or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.